Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! This has been a long and incredible haul, and may this deal be done. Um, we have worked hard. We, the, the feet are the feet of our feet on the streets, and I think it's really um, set the tone for other workers in America and other unions. After 146 days on strike, a tentative deal has been reached between writers and the Hollywood studios. The Writers Guild of America has described the new deal as exceptional. We'll get the latest and get an update on auto workers expanding their strike against the big three. Then Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is facing new scrutiny after ProPublica revealed he secretly participated in at least two donor fundraising events organized by a right-wing network founded by the Koch brothers. The Koch political network has brought multiple cases to the Supreme Court, including one of the most closely watched of the upcoming term. And uh, Justice Thomas's appearance at these donor events uh, was not previously disclosed. And New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez has been indicted along with his wife for allegedly accepting large bribes to benefit the Egyptian government. Special agents with the FBI executed search warrants on the residence and safe deposit box of Senator Menendez and Nadine Menendez in New Jersey. When they got there, they discovered approximately $500,000 of cash stuffed into envelopes and closets. Some of the cash was stuffed in the senator's jacket pockets. We'll go to Cairo and New Jersey for the latest. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and a growing number of Democrats are calling on New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign after he and his wife were indicted Friday on bribery charges. Congressmember Andy Kim announced Saturday he'll run for Menendez's Senate seat. Federal prosecutors accuse Menendez of accepting bribes in exchange for using his position to increase U.S. assistance to Egypt and to do favors for New Jersey businessmen. Senator Menendez allegedly provided sensitive, non-public U.S. government information to Egyptian officials and otherwise took steps to secretly aid the government of Egypt. We also allege that Senator Menendez improperly pressured a senior official at the U.S. Department of Agriculture to protect a lucrative monopoly that the government of Egypt had awarded to HANA, a lucrative monopoly that HANA then used to fund certain bribe payments.
Bribes included a Mercedes-Benz mortgage payments, gold bars, and over half a million dollars in cash stashed throughout the House. It's the second time Menendez has been charged with corruption. Menendez stepped down as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's holding a press conference today. We'll have more on the story later in the broadcast. The Writers Guild of America has reached what union leaders are calling an exceptional tentative deal on a new contract with Hollywood studios and streaming services after a historic 146-day strike. The settlement follows stepped-up negotiations over the past week between the WGA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, capping months of stalled talks over compensation, residuals, and protections against artificial intelligence. The writers' breakthrough could give momentum to talks between SAG-AFTRA and Hollywood Studios to end a strike by actors who walked off the job in July. In other labor news, President Biden will walk the picket line with United Auto Workers in Michigan Tuesday. It's believed to be the first time a sitting president has joined strikers on the picket line. This comes as the union announced Friday an expansion of its strike to 38 locations in 20 states. The new work stoppages target GM and Stellantis after the UAW acknowledged real progress in talks with Ford. French President Emmanuel Macron announced Sunday France will withdraw its troops and ambassador from Niger two months after a military coup that overthrew President Mohamed Bazoum. It's another setback for France's waning presence in the Sahel region, where its decades-long counterterrorism efforts have largely failed or worsened in security. Niger. Mali and Burkina Faso. All former French colonies have seen military coups in recent years formed a mutual defense pact earlier this month to combat against armed interventions. In Somalia, at least 21 people were killed and more than 50 others wounded Saturday as a truck loaded with explosives sped through a security checkpoint and detonated in a residential neighborhood of the central Somali town of Beledwain. The blast reduced buildings and shops to rubble. No one's claimed responsibility, though the al-Shabaab armed group has been active in the area. The attack came one day before U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed in Djibouti, where Austin praised Somalia's military for what he called its impressive progress in the fight against al-Shabaab. Austin is in Nairobi, Kenya today and will visit Angola later in the week. In Ghana, hundreds of people took to the streets for three days of anti-government protests as anger mounts over skyrocketing living costs and unemployment. This is very, very dangerous to the whole country. We have cases among the age of 14, 15, who are now taking people's belongings just to survive. The government doesn't care. They are just selling money. And the African can do nothing. But their time is up. We are, we are here and we will fight. If no one cares, the youth cares. And when the youth cares, then the country must care. It's the worst economic crisis to hit Ghana in years, triggered by the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and rising debt to the International Monetary Fund after Ghana's government agreed to a $3 billion loan. At least 49 people were arrested in the capital Accra Thursday as police blocked protesters from storming the presidential palace. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers killed two Palestinians during a military raid on a refugee camp in the city of Tulkarim. This is the brother of 32-year-old Abdurrahman Abu Darash, killed by Israeli forces Sunday. 
First of all, I was with my brother here. He went up to the rooftop to film the ambulances. He barely had a chance to look, and a sniper targeted him. He has nothing to do with it. He has children, and his wife is about to give birth. He had nothing to do with it, and he was unarmed. The latest violence in the West Bank came as Israel's military launched more airstrikes on the Gaza Strip over the weekend. As Palestinians continue to protest Israel shutting down the Beit Hanun crossing, the only operational crossing for Gazans to enter Israel, including some 18,000 Palestinians who work in Israel. Canada's House Speaker Anthony Rota has apologized for leading a standing ovation for a 98-year-old Ukrainian veteran who fought alongside the Nazis. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who was at the Canadian Parliament to deliver an address to the lawmakers, joined in on the applause, along with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It's not clear if Zelensky, who is Jewish, knew that Yaroslav Honka was a member of SS Galashina, which was found to be responsible for the persecution and extermination of Jews during the Nuremberg trials. Zelensky has previously spoken out against the Nazi unit. In more news from Canada, The New York Times is reporting U.S. spies provided information to the Canadian government that helped lead to the claim India was directly involved in the June killing of Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar in British Columbia. But The Times says Ottawa's own surveillance of Indian diplomats in Canada provided the most definitive evidence to support its accusation, which India has rejected. Following Nijjar's assassination, the FBI warned Sikh activists in the United States of possible death threats. Thousands of ethnic Armenians are fleeing the breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh following Azerbaijan's 24-hour military operation last week, which seized control of the disputed territory from Armenian separatist forces. One survivor said shelling by Azerbaijani forces on his village left dozens of civilians dead. We barely survived the last days. It was scary. There was shelling from all sides. There were dead bodies. I don't know where they are now. Two refrigerated trucks filled with bodies to the top, and there's no place to even bury them. Out of 500 residents in my settlement, only 40 managed to get out. Everyone else stayed. They are at the airport and in the city, in different places, and they are waiting to be evacuated. Over the weekend, Armenia asked the United Nations for help monitoring the rights of ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenia's prime minister said he needed guarantees from Azerbaijan that civilians would be protected. Unless real living conditions are created for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh in their homes and effective mechanisms of protection from ethnic cleansing, then the likelihood that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh will see exile from their homeland as the only way to preserve their lives and identity increases significantly. Meanwhile, protesters in Armenia continue to demand the prime minister resign for failing to support Armenian separatists in Nagorno-Karabakh. In Kosovo, ethnic Serb gunmen in armored vehicles ambushed a police patrol and stormed a monastery near the border with Serbia Sunday, beginning a chaotic day of violence that ended with at least four people killed. Many of the gunmen escaped. Kosovo's prime minister, Alban Kurti, accused Serbia's government of financing and motivating the attackers. Kosovo declared independence in 2008, but the Serbian government does not recognize its sovereignty. Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic blamed Prime Minister Kurti for provoking the assailants. 
He left Kosovo Serbs to worry about their future and all the time he kept provoking them. I regret that some Serbs succumbed to the provocations. Albin Kurti is the only one to blame. Albin Kurti is the only one who wants conflict in war. No other man wants conflict in war besides him. His life's desire is to drag us into war with NATO. In Nebraska, a woman who pleaded guilty to helping her 17-year-old daughter obtain abortion pills, then helping her dispose of the fetus, was sentenced to two years in prison Friday. Jessica Burgess admitted in July to helping with the abortion when her daughter, Celeste, was 29 weeks pregnant in April 2022. At the time, Nebraska still allowed abortions up to 20 weeks. Celeste Burgess had already received a 90-day sentence after taking a plea deal and was released from jail in early September. And Pope Francis is calling for international action to stop the drowning of refugees as they attempt to reach European shores. During his visit to Marseille, France, Pope Francis said the Mediterranean Sea, quote, has become a huge cemetery where many brothers and sisters are deprived even of the right to a grave. We should not get used to seeing disasters at sea as mere news stories and those dying at sea as numbers. No, they have names, faces and stories. They are broken lives and shattered dreams. The U.N. has recorded some 25,000 drownings in the Mediterranean since 2014, though the true death toll is likely much higher. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. After 146 days on strike, the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers have announced a tentative deal has been reached between striking writers and the studios. The Writers Guild's negotiating committee told union members, quote, we can say with great pride that this deal is exceptional, with meaningful gains and protections for writers in every sector of the membership, they said. The deal includes many of the demands of the striking writers, including higher pay and residual payments for streaming content and new rules about the use of artificial intelligence. The WGA leadership is expected to vote on the deal Tuesday. The strike, which began May 2nd, had largely shut down the production of movies and scripted TV shows. The tentative agreement does not impact actors who have been on strike since July 14th. We're joined now by labor reporter Alex Press, staff writer for Jacobin Magazine. Who's closely covered the writers' strike? Alex, welcome back to Democracy Now. Can you explain what we understand at this point are the major issues that have been resolved, and then what is the timetable for how this strike ends? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Amy, on such a positive occasion for a change. Um, so, as you said in your introduction here, you know, we don't know much about the details. Descriptions of the deal right now, the tentative agreement, which again will have to be voted on by the membership after being um, approved of by both the boards on both the Writers Guild of America West and East. Um, so, it'll take a few days for that vote to happen. Um, th that deal apparently includes protections around the use of artificial intelligence, which writers were worried would be used to be trained on their old scripts to basically use their former work to train them out of future work. Um, there are concerns around the lack of residuals in streamers. Um, so if you're on Netflix, you know, it's not like the writer is getting another payment every time there's a rerun. There's no such thing as a rerun. You can watch Seinfeld all day long on Netflix. So there is apparently a new form of residual that's 
going to come in the form of some bonus of some sort. The details are scarce. You know, I spoke with some bargaining committee members late last night and they said, we're still respecting the press blackout. So they are not speaking. Um, they are waiting for the process to go um, forward in the union. And that process is as followed, right? So the negotiating committee is going to vote on whether to recommend this tentative agreement. They're going to then send it to the board of both the East and West WGA. Those elected bodies of leadership are then going to vote on whether to authorize the membership to ratify the contract, right? So there's a couple steps here before members are voting. You know, their elected leadership, both West and East, are going to look at the details once those details are finalized and make sure that this is good enough for them to even send it to the membership, right? So, you know, I often say that unions are one of the few democratic institutions the working class in this country still have. And it's great that they actually get to enjoy those processes that you know, are about their say and their elected leaders say. So it's not a done deal yet. And as you mentioned, SAG after members have yet to even meet once with the AMPTP. Um, we can expect that that will happen soon, but, you know, never a done deal in Hollywood at this point. And just to be clear, does the membership have to vote before? I mean, there's been speculation that, for example, the late night talk shows might be starting as early as tomorrow night or the next night. Do they have to finally vote before that happens? I, as far as I know, that is not going to happen. You know, the, the WGA negotiating committee was very clear that until they say so, all members in this covered under this contract are on strike. Um, and so just because they've suspended those picket lines does not mean workers are going back into the offices or the proverbial writer's rooms that might happen remotely. Um, so I don't know if there's any speculation or something on that, but nothing I've seen from the WGA suggests that members are to report to work. So let's turn to the United Auto Workers strike targeting the big three automakers. On Friday, the UAW expanded the strike to 38 GM and Stellantis parts distribution centers. The strike did not include any new Ford locations. Meanwhile, President Biden's planning to join the United Auto Workers picket line in Michigan on Tuesday, believed to be the first time a sitting president has joined strikers on the picket line. Donald Trump is planning to visit Detroit. Detroit on Wednesday. So it looks like Biden wanted to get in there before that, though, whether or not Trump will walk the picket line, he is fiercely criticizing the UAW leadership. President Biden's expressed support. Alex, can you talk yes, about I, the expansion and what it means for a president? It's funny to say a sitting president walking the line, uh, but it'll be the walking president. A standing up president, um, as President Sean Fain would put it, um, president of the UAW, that is. Yeah, I mean, this this is really a product very clearly and unambiguously of the union being militant rather than differential, not just to Biden, but to any politician. You know, the UAW has been very clear. Anyone is invited to stand in solidarity on the picket line um, with the membership. And it's a huge win that Biden feels that it's necessary. Um, certainly, I would say about Donald Trump, you know, Pre President Sean Fain has been very clear that this membership and this strike is all about putting an end to the redistribution of wealth upward to billionaires and millionaires. And um, I think he brooks, you know, no interest in Donald Trump's pretend interest in the working class. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that whether you look at Trump or other of the sort of faux populist right wing um, thinkers and politicians, they keep pretending that they support this strike, but they seem to never add any details to that. Right. You know, Biden, for his, you know, on his part, did say record profits, record contracts. Um, you're not really seeing that from a lot of other sort of people on the right. 
Um, and so I want to be clear here that this is a strike that is about higher wages that are that's getting money that's owed to these workers for sacrifices they've made, uh, particularly since the Great Recession. Um, and it's worth saying that progress has been made at Ford at one of the big three here. Um, and Ford has given you know, tentative, they've tentatively agreed to certain issues. At least that is what my understanding of the progress at that negotiating table is. And some of those things include restoring the cost of living allowances that workers gave up at Ford during the bailout and the recession. It includes converting temporary workers to permanent workers after 90 days, whereas currently it was four or eight years that it took those workers to be converted. You know, these are big deal wins, and they are also things that the company said they could never do. And suddenly it didn't even take an all-out strike, and you're starting to see them do what they said was impossible. Well, of course, we'll continue to cover all of this. Alex Press, I want to thank you for joining us for this late-breaking news. Staff writer for Jacobin Magazine, where she covers labor. Next up, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas facing new scrutiny after ProPublica reveals he secretly participated in at least two fundraising events organized by a right-wing network founded by the Koch brothers back in 30 seconds. Celebration by Cool and the Gang here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The independent news outlet ProPublica has published another damning investigation in series on the connections between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and donors who may be impacted by cases that come before his court. That's the nation's highest court. The latest story concerns the libertarian billionaires Charles and David Koch, who've spent millions on conservative causes and funneled vast donations into Republican campaigns. The report's headline, Clarence Thomas secretly participated in Koch Network donor events and follows up on past reports that Clarence Thomas secretly accepted luxury trips from GOP donor Harlan Crow and many others. In the new piece, ProPublica reports Justice Thomas has attended Koch donor events at least twice over the years and, quote, that puts Thomas in the extraordinary position of having served as a fundraising draw for a network that's brought cases before the Supreme Court, including one of the most closely watched of the upcoming term, unquote. The pending Supreme Court case challenges a precedent-setting case known as Chevron and seeks to limit the power of federal agencies to issue regulations in areas ranging from the environment to labor rights to consumer protection. David Koch died in 2019. His brother, Charles Koch, did not respond to the new report. But a Koch Network spokesperson told ProPublica, quote, 
Thomas wasn't present for fundraising conversations. The idea that attending a couple events to promote a book or give dinner remarks, as all the justices do, could somehow be undue influence just doesn't hold water, the spokesperson said. For more on the details of this new investigation, including how Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was at the Bohemian Grove, a secretive all-men's retreat in Northern California with David Koch and filmmaker Ken Burns, among others, we're joined by Justin Elliott, reporter for ProPublica. Welcome back, Justin, to Democracy Now! Lay out this latest expose. Sure. So what we found is that uh, Justice Thomas, as you mentioned, has attended and participated in multiple Koch donor summits. So essentially, uh, the Koch brothers founded this uh, powerful network of political groups, spends hundreds of millions of dollars on elections, also uh, employs lawyers who bring cases to the courts. Um, and every January, uh, they have a big donor summit out in Palm Springs, California, uh, where Charles Koch has a mansion. Um, other wealthy business people fly out there. Uh, they have a meeting. They sort of review what they've been doing. It's, it's, it's essentially their big marquee fundraising event of the year. And that's the event that we found Justice Thomas had made undisclosed trips to. Most recently, in January 2018, we found the justice was flown out there on a private jet gave a talk to a small dinner of, of high-dollar Coke donors, people that gave over a million dollars. And none of this was disclosed <clears throat> um, as, as it should have been on his uh, annual financial disclosures. Uh, I wanted to get your response to—it's rare to get these justices commenting like this. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan giving an address at Notre Dame Law School on Friday— after uh, your new report on Justice Thomas came out, she was asked if the high court needs a code of ethics. She didn't mention Justice Thomas by name in her response. Right now, we're in a situation where we've committed to following certain kinds of ethical rules respecting judges, um, but, uh, but have said we will only be guided by others. So... You know, we've committed to following the gift rules that other judges follow and uh, the outside income rules that other judges follow. But other judges have a very extensive code of ethics that um, governs everything that they do. And there's been some concern, and I think it's legitimate concern, that not uh, that the Supreme Court is, a, is, a, is, is an unusual kind of court in certain respects and that some of the rules do not fit quite as well in, at the Supreme Court level than they do at um, the level of lower courts. But, um, but of course, what we could do is just adapt the code of conduct that the other court systems have in order to refle reflect those um, uh, slight or certain differences. And I think it would be a good thing for the court to do that. So that's Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Um, Justin Elliott, your response. How significant is what she's saying and how many Congress members agree with her? I want to mention that Brett Kavanaugh, um, the other Supreme Court justice, uh, recently said the court may, quote, soon address a code of ethics on the high court. And Chief Justice John Robertson may called ethics scandals at the court a, quote, issue of concern and said justices were, quote, continuing to look at things. Your response to all this? 
Yeah. So first of all, just to explain, I mean, as uh, Justice Kagan mentioned, um, all other federal judges below the Supreme Court level have, uh, you know, extensive rules, a code of ethics, advisory opinions. You know, we actually quoted uh, a, a retired federal judge, a George W. Bush appointee in our new story, who said that if he had gone to a, a Coke donor su- summit, uh, there would have been a disciplinary proceeding. And, and the reason for that is uh, lower court judges are not supposed to be involved in either political events or fundraising. And this Coke donor summit is you know, arguably both of those things. Um, but as Justice Kagan said, um, those rules don't apply to the Supreme Court. Um, I think is significant, although I will note that they've been talking about adopting some sort of formal rules for at least five or six years now. And the reporting on that is that the court is looking for unanimity among the nine justices uh, and apparently been having trouble getting that. Uh, so I think it's really something that if, if they if 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 they adopt any rules, we'll really have to take a close look at them to see if there's any teeth or if it's just sort of abstractions about the importance of uh, being independent and and acting. Um, We just showed a picture of Ken Burns, David Koch, uh, who has since died, and uh, and um, and Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, Can you talk about that gathering? Sure. So another part of this story connects back to our previous reporting on Harlan Crow, who's a, a Republican billionaire political donor out of Dallas, uh, who's been essentially subsidizing Justice Thomas's life for many decades, uh, bringing him on expensive vacations around the around the world, uh, paying tuition for relatives and other other things. Um, what we found now is that Harlan Crow has been taking Justice Thomas on more trips over the years, previously undisclosed trips, out to the Grove, which, if folks haven't heard of it, is this uh, all-men's retreat takes place every July in a a redwood forest in Sonoma County, where um, essentially political and corporate elites meet. You have to be a member of uh, this club to get in. Uh, Famously, uh, Henry Kissinger has been going for many decades. Um, And what we found is that uh, Justice Thomas has been going there for years. He's a regular there with Harlan Crow. Um, And he stays in this camp, which is essentially like a fraternity with a a couple dozen men. Um, And other members of that camp include Charles and David Koch. It's called Midway. Um, And what we were told, talking to many people that have spent time there over the years, is that uh, the justice developed this relationship and bond uh, with the Kochs on these trips to the Bohemian Grove, which really answers a question in part that we've been wondering about, which is what is going on on all these trips and vacations that Harlan Crow is taking Justice Thomas on? It turns out part of the answer is, you know, he's spending time with people like the Kochs who who have active interests and, in fact, cases at the Supreme Court. So if you can talk about a case that's coming up, I'm looking at one um, article in The Hill, Chevron case, Supreme Court could take sledgehammer to agency power. Explain what this case is all about and why that's called Chevron. Yeah, so it takes its name from a from a pre- previous Supreme Court case, a landmark case back in the mid-1980s called Chevron. Um, and this is something that 
most people haven't heard of. I hadn't heard of it until a few months ago, but uh, it turns out to be you know incredibly important. Uh, it's one of the most cited uh, Supreme Court cases of recent decades. And essentially, what it says is that and it's uh, really fe- Chevron versus NRDC, right? The Natural Resources Defense Council. That's right. And essentially what it says is that judges and courts should defer to federal agencies like the EPA or the FDA or the Department of Labor uh, when those agencies come up with regulations. So it, it really insulates the uh, the agencies from from challenges from business and, and others uh, when when the federal agencies issue a regulation that somebody might not like. Um, and, you know, for for years now, uh, the Koch political network has had this ruling in its sights. And the case in the upcoming term, that case is called Loper Bright. Um, and it was actually brought by uh, Koch network lawyers who are representing the plaintiffs. They brought it in the lower court and have shepherded it to the Supreme Court. Um, and a lot of legal observers think that the Supreme Court is, with the new conservative supermajority, is going to use this case uh, as uh, the opportunity to overturn this, Chev- this Chevron precedent back from the 1980s, uh, which would, you know, people we talked to said would just have huge ramifications for, uh, you know, the executive branch's ability to issue regulations in, in basically every part of American life. And explain exactly how it would benefit the Koch brothers, whose fundraisers, apparently, you exposed uh, Justice Thomas um, attended and was the draw for. Yeah, well, uh, ideologically, of course, the Kochs are uh, libertarians, you know, going back many decades. Uh, you know, we noted in our story that when David Koch actually ran for vice president on the uh, Libertarian Party ticket back in 1980 and the platform called for just abolishing the EPA, Department of Energy, U.S. Post, Postal Service, a whole range of federal agencies. Um, but, in, you know, the, the Kochs uh, have, you know, run, I believe, the largest or second largest private company in, in the country uh, that operates in a lot of highly regulated sectors, particularly um, energy, oil, gas, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, for years have been bristling at uh, government regulations, challenging regulations in court. And if this Chevron doctrine is overturned by the Supreme Court, it's going to make it much, much easier to challenge a regulation if you as a company don't like it. So it's the type of thing that it's not going to be like the Dobbs decision where abortion rights are taken away overnight, but uh, it, it, it can affect um, you know, vast numbers of, of regulations going forward, uh, basically in, in any area you can conceive of. Now, Justice Thomas has flipped on Chevron? Yeah, the other really striking thing about this, and we still don't really have all the answers, is that Justice Thomas, uh, 20 years ago, was a supporter of Chevron, wrote decisions citing it, uh, expanding it, actually. Um, and then in the last few years, um, culminating in 2020, he came out in a, a written opinion saying, um, actually, I've changed my mind and, and Chevron is unconstitutional and we should overturn it. Uh, this is extremely unusual, especially for Justice Thomas, who has a reputation as being sort of stubbornly independent and unmovable in his views. Now, to be clear, we don't know that uh, this is related to his relationship with the Kochs, but it's something that you almost never see. In fact, I can't think of another example where Justice Thomas has done a full 180 turn on an issue. Um, so that's 
part of the backdrop here. Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society leader, said in a statement to you, to ProPublica, quote, Justice Thomas attends events all over the country, as do all the justices. I was privileged to join him. All the necessary due diligence was performed to ensure the justices' attendance at the events was compliant with all ethics requirements. Your response to that, and then just summarize. I mean, uh, ProPublica has published one story after another. One, would Clarence Thomas be recusing himself? Um, and where these stories, um, it's not only Harlan Crow, it's not only the Koch brothers, you also had that piece in between, talking about other billionaires subsidizing his vacations uh, to the tune of millions of dollars. Yeah, well, in terms of the recusal, uh, it's another thing about the Supreme Court. Uh, the recusal decisions are made entirely by each justice, him or herself. So uh, Chairman Durbin of the Senate Judiciary Committee called on Friday for Justice Thomas to recuse himself from this Loper Bright case that the Koch Network has brought to the court. Uh, Justice Thomas hasn't responded yet that I've seen. Um, you know, in, in terms of wh where the stories are going, uh, you know, we're, we're still re reporting on, on the entire Supreme Court. And, you know, if anyone out there knows anything, please get in touch. Um, but, you know, I, I think, and to Leonard Leo's statement just briefly that mentioned ethical requirements being met, uh, I mean, they did not elaborate on that. And everyone we've talked to said that, uh, you know, ethical requirements were not met, in particular, uh, being flown out to Palm Springs on a, a private jet paid for by somebody else, apparently, is something that you, you just have to disclose. And uh, Justice Thomas did not hear. What else are you working on, Justin? Um, can't, can't talk about what's next, but, uh, still on the Supreme Court beat with my colleagues. So, uh, we're, we're, we're still going on it. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Justin Elliott, reporter for ProPublica, co-wrote their new report headline, Clarence Thomas secretly participated in Koch network donor events. And just this interesting point, a piece in The Guardian, um, Workers at Bohemian Grove, that uh, secretive uh, one, workers at the Bohemian Grove, one of the most elite and secretive clubs in the U.S., have filed a lawsuit alleging numerous unfair labor practices, including 16-hour workdays without breaks and a failure to pay overtime and minimum wage to the workers. Well, next up, New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez has been indicted, along with his wife, for allegedly accepting large bribes to benefit the Egyptian government. We'll go to Cairo, Egypt and to New Jersey for the latest. Stay with us. I told you, baby, one more time, don't make me sit all alone and crawl is over. I know it, but I can't let go. I'm like a fish out of water, can't the tree now. You don't even want to talk to me when it's over. I know it, but I can't let go. He won't take me back when I come around. Go by Della May. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
We turn now to the indictment of New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez, who resigned Friday as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, though continues to be a senator. He and his wife were indicted Friday in a sweeping bribery case. Federal prosecutors accused Menendez of accepting bribes in exchange for using his position to increase U.S. military aid to Egypt and to do favors for three New Jersey businessmen, including Wael Hanna, an Egyptian-American who ran a lucrative business certifying halal meat exports. This is Manhattan federal prosecutor Damian Williams. First, the indictment alleges that Senator Menendez used his power and influence, including his leadership role on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to benefit the government of Egypt in various ways. Among other actions, Senator Menendez allegedly provided sensitive, non-public U.S. government information to Egyptian officials and otherwise took steps to secretly aid the government of Egypt. We also allege that Senator Menendez improperly pressured a senior official at the U.S. Department of Agriculture to protect a lucrative monopoly that the government of Egypt had awarded to HANA, a lucrative monopoly that HANA then used to fund certain bribe payments. That's U.S. Attorney for the Federal District of New York, Damian Williams, He went on, for the Southern District. He went on to describe what investigators uncovered during their search of Senator Menendez's home. Now, as part of this investigation, special agents with the FBI executed search warrants on the residence and safe deposit box of Senator Menendez and Nadine Menendez in New Jersey. When they got there, they discovered approximately $500,000 of cash stuffed into envelopes and closets. Some of the cash was stuffed in the senator's jacket pockets. And some of the cash, some of the envelopes of cash contained Davy's fingerprints or Davy's DNA. That's not all. Agents also discovered a lot of gold, gold that was provided by Davies and Hanna. This is the Mercedes Benz that we allege that Uribe provided as part of the scheme. What you see here are three kilograms of gold. These three kilograms together are worth approximately $150,000. And of course, here you can see just a fraction of the cash that was uncovered as part of the scheme. And uh, Damian Williams is pointing to cash in the windbreakers and coats and clothes of Senator Menendez at home. According to prosecutors, after a trip to Egypt in 2021, Senator Menendez searched on Google, how much is one kilo of gold worth, unquote. This is not the first time Senator Menendez has faced corruption charges. He was indicted in 2015, but the Justice Department ultimately dropped the charges in 2018 after a jury could not reach a verdict. Menendez is facing growing calls to resign from New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, at least six members of the New Jersey congressional delegation—that's um, six Congress members, not including his own son, who's a Congress member in New Jersey. Democratic Congress member Andy Kim has already announced he will run against Menendez. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York has called for him to resign. Um, but George Santos, the other indicted congressman, has said he should stay. We're joined now by two guests. Lena Atalla is co-founder of the independent Cairo-based news website Matamaser. 
where she is now an editor, and she's the publisher. In 2019, Mata Masser helped expose a critical part of the story. The expose was headlined, How the Multimillion-Dollar Business of Certifying Halal Meat Imports Was Monopolized. We're also joined by Bob Henley, an award-winning reporter who's been covering Democratic Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey for decades, an investigative reporter with Insider New Jersey and Salon. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Bob, we're going to begin with you in New Jersey. Just lay out these charges. Well, so it's lifestyles of the rich and elected. Um, what is so jarring is the gold bullion in the pictures. There's also this new Mercedes Benz, the C-130 with $60,000 convertible that showed up. There was also really sloppy texting back and forth between Ms. Menendez and Nadine Arcelarian, who had just, I guess, married Mr. Menendez a few years back between the senator and all the principals. It's almost like, Amy, like he wanted to be caught. Because uh, it, there was just really no effort to draw. Well, there was a couple of text messages uh, like "Let's not text and email," but it's they have really been able to lay out a roadmap that's very compelling, and I think that's part of the reason why. In addition to the fact that the entirety of the New Jersey legislature is up in 2023, uh, and people may be surprised to know that Donald Trump didn't win New Jersey, but he got more votes here in the past, and so. Democrats who are really trying to draw a contrast between the insurrectionists and Donald Trump really can't afford to have Bob Menendez hang around. So explain further these, for example, gold bars that were found that had the fingerprints of uh, one of the other men indicted. That's right. There was DNA uh, evidence that linked it to these uh, individuals. There was also really uh, something that's perhaps even more troubling than the corruption involving Senator, but he attempted to try to get involved with ongoing criminal investigations with the New York State Attorney General. And there's even great bit of detail, great bit of detail surrounding the current U.S. Attorney, Phil Selinger, uh, who was with the law firm Greenberg Traurig, very connected politically. And apparently there was a situation where Menendez, before Selinger was nominated by President Biden, actually wanted to exact for him a guarantee that he would intervene on behalf of one of his friends who was part of this great lifestyles and the rich elected. And uh, Selinger said, well, listen, according to uh, Mr. Williams' indictment, uh, you know, I may have to recuse myself because I have like a professional conflict there. And then Menendez feigned that he was going to withhold uh, Selinger's support of Selinger, which makes all the difference, and then switched back to supporting uh, Phil Selinger. So this really, this has legs, as they say. Mm. This is House Representative. This is Congress member Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez being interviewed Sunday on Face the Nation. You know, I think it's the situation is um, quite unfortunate, but I do believe that it is in the best interests uh, for Senator Menendez to resign in this moment. As you mentioned, consistency matters. It shouldn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. The details in this indictment are extremely serious. They involve uh, the nature of of not just his, but all of our seats in Congress. And while, you know, as a Latina, there are absolutely ways in which there is systemic bias. But I think what is here in this indictment is quite clear. 
So that's AOC uh, speaking on Sunday, calling for Bob Menendez to resign. As we are broadcasting right now, it's right before the news conference he'll hold from Union City, uh, his hometown in New Jersey. Not clear what he's going to say at that point. Six New, uh, New Jersey Congress members of the nine have called for him to resign. He's already stepped down head of Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His own son has not called yet for him to resign. Cory Booker has not made a statement yet, New Jer other New Jersey senator. Um, but his position, which he did step down from Friday, Bob, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, extremely significant, given his position on Egypt, one of the leading recipients of U.S. military aid in the world after Israel. Um, he plays such a key role there, also went to Egypt a few years ago, and what that role is and what the connection is, the allegations are— um, when it comes to lobbying basically for Egypt. He contends in a recent interview he did on CNN after it was leaked that his home was raided, um, that he has stood up for human rights um, in Egypt. Well, I guess one of the things here is that uh, he has put his finger on the scale before. What is so troubling about this is that the USDA stepped forward at one point when it was made aware of his attempt to help his pal, his contributor, uh, get control over the halal export market, which is you know, worth millions of dollars. They were pointing out, hey, there's other American businesses that are going to be hurt by this. This tracks exactly, Amy, with his pattern in practice with the Federal Drug Administration with Dr. Uh, Salman Melgin. Uh, in that case, it was alleged that Melgin was taking a uh, a dose of eye medicine and splitting it several ways, and then you know putting people's health at risk. He was a major donor to uh, Bob Menendez. Uh, he was convicted for a seventy five million dollar fraud. Which, by the way, I, I hate to always have to mention Trump in this segment. Trump commuted his sentence. Bob Menendez, as you said in the opening, did escape conviction with a hung jury. But the Senate seriously admonished him. So the fact pattern was established. So this is this is what he does. I want to bring Lena Atala into this conversation, publisher of the Cairo-based Matamasser. Um, when we were in Egypt for the UN Climate Summit, Lena, uh, we came to you and did a profile on your organization, your independent news organization, Matamasser. Now, while you didn't mention um, Menendez in your 2019 report, how the multi-million dollar business of certifying halal meat imports was monopolized. Um, if you can talk about what your reporter found at that time to explain to people what exactly happened with the monopolization of the certification of halal meat, all meat coming into Egypt must be halal, right? How does that happen? So thank you, Amy. It's uh, it's great to be uh, back on the show. Um, so what happened, and, uh, and I must say that we are uh, very excited to see uh, um, um, our story being a small tentacle to something that is, you know, much more huge in terms of um, in terms of corruption. But what happened back in 2019 is that our reporter Nada Arafat and her editor Mohammad Hamema uh, noticed uh, um, a, a steep increase in um, imported uh, meat prices. And they simply decided to follow the thread of what is causing uh, this increase in prices. 
um, and Egypt is uh, a major uh, meat importer. So, you know, by following the thread uh, of how the prices got, were gone up, um, were brought up, we found that it is a story of monopolization. How? So basically, for any uh, uh, company, any supplier of meat to, to supply Egypt with meat, they have to get uh, from um, official certifiers a halal certification. That is, that the meat is slaughtered in accordance and in compliance with Sharia laws. But then what happened is that um, Egypt uh, allows um, um, certain certifiers to provide the certification, except that in 2019, Egypt suddenly disqualified all certifiers, with the exception of this one company called ISEG, um, whose founder is basically none other than uh, Will Hanna or uh, Oli Hanna, who is mentioned as one of the main de- defendants and one of the main mediators, uh, paying off uh, Senator, Senator Menendez uh, for um, services for the Egyptian government. We followed the thread of the company uh, and how basically uh, this one company, after disqualifying uh, all the certifiers, the moment it got, uh, um, it was allowed to provide certification, it raised uh, exponentially the fees of a certificate. Uh, so basically, uh, one container of meat, um, which used to cost $200 now under the monopoly, would cost $5,000 to be certified. Um, the, the, the banning of um, certifiers started off in the U.S. and then was extended to Latin America and other major um, um, importer, uh, another major supplier of meat to Egypt. So that caused uh, the prices to go to surge uh, all the way up. Now I can tell more about ISEG if you're interested. Uh, but yes, the main ISEG about- with uh, 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 Wael Hanna, who has also been indicted, and who exactly he is in the United States, mm-hmm. but also in Egypt, who exactly he's working for. So we know we knew nothing about uh, Wael Hanna. Uh, before doing this investigation. Uh, he's an Egyptian uh, immigrant uh, who, uh, who, lives, um, who lives in the U.S. We have not traced uh, in our 2019 investigation his direct uh, connections with the authorities here. Uh, we now uh, saw this in the, in the indictment uh, uh, document, the 40 pages indictment document. So it's clear what kind of connections he has. But basically, um, where it is listed as the founder of this company, uh, that became the sole certifier of halal certifications, which is something that was granted to him from the Egyptian government. And just to so be clear, they, he had never been involved with certification of halal before. Not at all. In he fact, never, he, he uh, himself is Christian. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. So Wael uh, is a Christian and, um, and ISEG uh, was established in New Jersey in 2017, but had nothing to do with meat certification until it received uh, this privilege uh, from the Egyptian government in 2019. Now, another interesting connection is that um, Wael's lawyer... Uh, uh, a person whose name uh, uh, we found uh, during our investigation is a certain Howard Dorian, who's a lawyer and who has um, a massive disciplinary history and has been suspended several times. So Dorian is the person who sets up ISEG 
And at the same time, Dorian sets up another company, uh, also in the U.S., a company called uh, Meditrade. And Meditrade basically became the sole distributor with um, ISEG of the Halal certificates to meet uh, to meet suppliers. Now, trying to follow um, the thread of who uh, owns Meditrade, we find two things: that Wa'el Hanna is listed as director in Meditrade. But that also Meditrade in the chain of ownership happens to uh, be associated with what we call in Egypt sovereign bodies. Sovereign bodies in Egypt usually refers to high level security apparatuses um, operating in the country. Wait, you're talking about Egyptian military intelligence? I can't tell. I know it's difficult to report in Egypt. Um, so. The significance of this in 2023, your report in 2019, linking Menendez to this. The significance of it is that, you know, what started off as um, a small tentacle um, that is, you know, a very uh, straightforward story of financial corruption, uh, where, you know, a single, a single company is, you know, making an average of um, $11 million in uh, profit a year uh, out of having uh, you know, taken the monopoly, um, uh, taken the monopoly over, um, over the, this, this business. Uh, and of course, you know, causing uh, meat prices to, to rise, uh, which is a very, like, again, direct financial uh, corruption uh, story that has a direct effect on people's life. Now also gained this political dimension uh, that, you know, now you see from in the, the indictment uh, 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 document, um, you know, what are the profits of this company being used for? And, you know, it circles back to um, doing services for the Egyptian government, such as uh, you know, negotiating the suspension on uh, certain portions of, um, of the annual uh, military aid that receives from the U.S., Egypt. It's one of the largest recipients of uh, U.S. military aid, $1.3 billion. Um, and, you know, there, has, there have been issues with uh, suspending a portion of that uh, in human rights conditionality. And Senator Menendez uh, was uh, cited, according to indict the indictment report, to have intervened uh, in order to uh, try and, and, and influence uh, this decision. So, so what was uh, straightforward financial um, corruption, uh, you know, had this major uh, political tentacle um, that, you know, affects, I would say, bilateral relations to a great extent. And, of course, when we were in Egypt at the UN Climate Summit a lot, uh, there was a major campaign going on to free Egyptian political prisoners, among them uh, Al Abdel Fattah, who remains uh, in prison, uh, Menendez serving as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time. Uh, do you think this could affect uh, whether or not he would raise these issues as so many have been when it comes to giving U.S. military aid to Egypt, one of the largest recipients in the world. So from what I saw uh, in, in this indictment form, I, could, I would never believe uh, that this is a person that um, was uh, in any form or way uh, working towards um, supporting the human rights situation in Egypt that was uh, repeatedly cited uh, by the U.S. also in the context of the annual aid. 
um, and that was cite- cited also in a specific relation to uh, the release of political prisoners, um, young people who have been lingering in prisons for um, years and years uh, for a tweet, uh, for um, for expressing themselves, which is basically the case of the prominent Ali Abdel Fattah. So, so you know, I would, I would, you know, wonder uh, what this example tells us about uh, how serious uh, the talk about human rights conditionality. This is um, an example of um, of a senator. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. This is very interesting, goes way beyond um, this particular indictment. Also, Hisham Qasim, uh, well-known journalist, co-founder of the Free Current Movement um, of liberal political parties in Egypt, just arrested, as well as are so many others imprisoned in Egypt right now. Lina Atala, publisher and editor of the Cairo, Egypt-based Matamasar, speaking to us from Cairo, and Bob Henley, award-winning reporter who's been covering Democratic Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey for decades. Uh, We'll link to his reports in Insider New Jersey and Insider NJ and Salon. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.